as I was kicking him and his face was covered in blood and, and I couldn't see his features, his eyes opened. And I suddenly had this moment where I thought that this could be my own brother or it could be my mother or a friend or my father. And I had uh, this moment of empathy for this person. Then the police sirens came and we ran. being warned about people like former neo-Nazi Christian Picciolini. I remember sitting in Hebrew school and having the teachers tell us we must never forget or the Holocaust could happen again, which honestly never made sense to me. Why would the Holocaust happen again if we forgot? But in the 40 years since I sat in that classroom, I've watched a world go from tearing walls down to putting them up again. And today the world's hate temperature is rising. Look, All of our lives have conflict, but there's a big, huge difference between living with conflict and feeling like you're living in an us-and-them fight-or-flight crisis. When that's the problem, then many of us need to feel like we need to protect our own, uh, finding a scapegoat to point to as the source of the problem. As a kid of immigrants, Christian Picciolini felt marginalized, abandoned by his working parents, and bullied. In fact, One day when he was cornered by a bully, he fought back and beat the guy down. And then he became respected by the other boys. Soon after, he was approached by an older, charismatic father figure kid who pulled him into the skinheads where he rose through the ranks over seven years, ultimately using hate music to recruit other boys to fight back against their imaginary invasion of others. Christian is lucky. He pulled himself out of that world He educated himself and turned his whole life around. He swung to the opposite pole and now runs a nonprofit organization called Life After Hate and is dedicated to helping fight the very hate that he once spread. This podcast is a scary and dramatic story and one that couldn't be more timely as politicians manipulate our unrest by aiming blame at everyone else. This is Grow Big Always. I'm Sam Lawrence. I actually think the beginning of this podcast sounds almost like a Jew and a Nazi walk into a podcast or something. (laughs) Start of a bad joke. (laughs) A really bad joke. Um, Anyway, I guess to take an awkward segue back into the serious part of of things, um, I've read read your book, by the way, which is awesome, and we can get to that. But I'd love just to start with, you know, really painting a picture of the environment that you started in, because I think a lot of people probably draw a assumption right away. Your parents were Nazis, uh, but the reality is, or, you know, horrible people or something. But the reality is, is you're a son of immigrants. You were just kind of picked on and bullied and kind of grew up in a, in a rough area. But I think painting that picture for people of the germ of things might be, uh, might be interesting. Sounds good. We can do that. You know, my journey started 20 years ago in in 1995 when I left the American white power skinhead movement that I helped build. Uh, I was 22 years old at the time, 
And I'd already spent seven years uh, as part of an organization that taught me how to hate. And in return, I taught others how to hate. Uh, but prior to that, prior to 14 years old, uh, when I joined and f- was first recruited into the white power movement, I was a relatively normal kid. Uh, I grew up on the south side of Chicago. I played Little League. I loved to draw. And uh, I came from a really wonderful family. Uh, in fact, my family uh, came from Italy and immigrated to the United States in the mid-1960s. And they were often the victims of prejudice when they came to this country. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it wasn't something that I was raised with. It wasn't, uh, you know, there wasn't any racism or any prejudice in our home. But because my parents came here at a young age and started a family young, they really wanted to get their slice of the American pie. And because of that, and they were content that I was surrounded by people uh, that loved me, family and other uh, villagers who had immigrated to the United States from the same villages that they came from in Italy, they were pretty uh, satisfied that I was being cared for while they were away working. Uh, but I really missed my parents. And, um, you know, I think when I joined the neo-Nazi group, uh, which happened to be the first American neo-Nazi group, which started on the south side of Chicago, uh, I did so uh, out of a, a searching for structure and for balance and also for identity. Uh, and when I met at 14 years old, when I was standing in an alley uh, smoking a joint, uh, and a 69 Firebird came roaring down the alley, spitting up gravel and dust and rocks, and it skidded to a halt two feet from me. And a gentleman got out of the passenger seat who had a shaved head, and he was much, much older than I was, uh, and he made a beeline towards me. And when he approached me, he grabbed the joint out of my mouth and he said, and I'll never forget this, don't you know that that's what the capitalists and the Jews want you to do to keep you docile? Now, I was 14 years old, so I didn't really know what a capitalist was. Uh, I don't think I'd ever met a Jewish person at that point. And I hardly knew what the word docile meant. But I was suddenly struck with the charisma and the power that this guy had. Uh, And as it turns out, this guy was Clark Martell who was America's first neo-Nazi skinhead gang leader. And I was struck initially both by his charisma, but also because it seemed he cared about me. He wasn't just telling me not to do drugs because they were stupid, something that my dad would say, or because I shouldn't do them. He actually gave me a reason and showed me that it was bad for me and bad for my environment if I were to do that. So it was almost the first instance where an adult figure took me under his wing and and really tried to care for me in a compassionate way, I saw at that point. So when a couple weeks later, uh, I was riding my bike around this alley and I left and my bike was stolen and I was beaten up by three black kids, suddenly The rhetoric that they were trying to convince me to believe, like blacks were moving into our neighborhoods and Latinos were bringing drugs and committing crimes, suddenly because now I had this experience at 14 years old where my bike was stolen and I was beaten up by black people, uh, it started to make sense to me. This rhetoric and this ideology that they had professed started to really sink in and I had concrete proof uh, that what they were saying was happening. Now, of course, it was misguided because things they, they were saying, like my parents were going to be put out of work by Latinos and, and drugs were coming into our neighborhood. I didn't see any of that. My parents weren't out of work. Um, and um, But I believed it, and I was misguided for seven years of my life, almost every single one of my formative teen years. You know, I have a, well, 15 and 17-year-old, and so when I look at my son – 
and I try to put myself, you know, I, I try to kind of build a different life for him, you know, where he, you know, maybe he was roughed up. He grew up kind of in a rough neighborhood. I was away working a whole lot. The socioeconomic depression that, that was around and or feelings of marginalization that may have existed and and how he may kind of be attracted to to something like that. And I can understand, I think, the strong drive of wanting to belong and getting seduced by the power and authority that you're talking about. It'd be interesting to hear you talk about, though, as you get sucked into this life, into this gang, into this ideology, what's happening inside of you in that journey where these extreme levels of hate and extremism, you know, your brain wasn't actually putting it into a context that says, hey, you know, this isn't right. You know, this, 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 this is wrong. Yeah. You know, and, and I think like your son and like most other young teenagers, uh, you know, I was bullied and, and I felt marginalized and I felt disaffected. And, uh, you know, I, I was picked on because I was different. I grew up in an Italian neighborhood, but my parents moved us to uh, kind of a more affluent, white, vanilla, suburban neighborhood about 10 miles away from Blue Island where I grew up. So when that happened, I was struggling with straddling two very different cultures. Suddenly, the, the Italian kids who I had known prior to 14 didn't really want anything to do with me because I had moved away and I was now a part of a culture that they didn't understand. So I was an outsider to them. And likewise, to the new kids where I went to school in Oak Forest, uh, they didn't accept me because I was the foreigner. I was different than them as well. So, I, you know, I really struggled with my own identity. And when I met Clark Martell and, and the other original skinheads in Chicago, um, it was more about structure and acceptance for me than anything else. It wasn't about ideology and it wasn't about politics. I was drawn in by the angst ridden music and the fashion and the feeling of protection and the feeling of, mm. of this new family because I'd really, la I thought I lacked one at home. So I wasn't brought in by the politics of the movement at first. I was uh, seduced by the, the subculture and the lifestyle. But it very quickly ramped up politically. And, and uh, you know, the rhetoric that I was fed was something that I spewed as well and learned how to recruit other young people. And it was, uh, it, you know, it was they were very savvy at that because they really targeted young people who who they knew felt marginalized and were searching for something. And more than anything else, uh, I was an ambitious kid and I really wanted to matter. I wanted to be some part of something that was very important. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't realize the, the magnitude and the gravity of what I was getting involved in at the time. How would you paint a picture of how your parents were dealing with this I, I've obviously read it in the book, but I definitely was struck as I was reading it as like, wow, I, I'm trying to imagine being them and watching a young Christian go through this journey. And and at what point would I go, hey, I'm putting my foot down or or whatever? Like, what do you think in retrospect went on in their minds now that you're a parent? You know, and, and I've had conversations with my parents about this over the years. You know, I think at first they didn't really realize what I was a part of because I certainly didn't tell them. And, you know, at first I hid it from them. But uh, when they started to figure out that I was in a little bit deeper than they thought and I was getting into trouble and I was being brought home by the police, they certainly uh, were very concerned with what I was a part of. I don't think that they quite understood it. 
Uh, and at one point, I think my mother even told me, uh, you know, why, why do you follow this Hitler guy? Why don't you follow some, you know, Italian guy like Mussolini or Al Capone? And, uh, and I think that that was her naive attempt to just try and draw me away from something that they didn't understand uh, into something that they saw as kind of a, a better evil because they understood it just a little bit more. But they were, you know, I look back now and while I didn't have a, a great relationship with my parents then because of because of my own reasons, they stuck by me through thick and thin and, uh, you know, a- attempted to really draw me away from this thing that was certainly uh, manifesting itself as something negative in my life, although I didn't see it that way. Uh, and they stuck by me. And had they not stuck by me uh, and tried everything that they possibly could, even supporting me when I was arrested by paying for my attorneys and and trying to talk to me, it wasn't effective because I was really adamant about going off on my own. I was really angry at them for abandoning me, even though they didn't. I mean, you know, your 14-year-old right. thoughts of, of what your parents do to you are much different than the thoughts you have as you grow older and you become a parent yourself. I recognize now that they were doing what they felt that they needed to do to support their family, and I, and I certainly don't blame them for that. At the time, it felt like abandonment to me. Uh, I was playing baseball. I, you know, I was involved in other sports, and, and my parents were never there to support me. Uh, and I saw that as abandonment. And, uh, unfortunately now, unfortunately now I see that as, you know, they were doing the best that they could to try and raise a family in a country where everybody had their hands out and and it was a struggle for immigrants to make it. Can you paint a picture of just, I think as painful as it might be having people understand some of the levels of extremism or violence that actually occurred. Cause I think some people, when they hear, neo-Nazi or Nazi or skinhead, uh, people have different pictures in their minds. And so I think to to whatever extent you can paint a clear picture, tell some stories about like what really went on in there as you went up. And I know you went th- kind of through the ranks actually, but what are some of the, the more, you know, some of the things I think that happened inside of that, that people can imagine when they are imagining this and they're hearing you? You know, I think the prevalent understanding by most people that neo-Nazi skinheads are violent and ignorant and hateful is is pretty accurate. Um, you know, I rose up pretty quickly after I joined at 14. Uh, by the time I was 16, Clark Martell, the person who had recruited me and several of the other older skinheads had been arrested for a series of pretty violent hate crimes. Uh, on the 49th anniversary of Kristallnacht, they uh, uh, raided Jewish shops, broke windows, painted swastikas on synagogues. And a week later, they also uh, confronted a female skinhead who had been part of their group, uh, who had been rumored to be seen around town with a black guy. So they went to her apartment and they beat her to an inch of her life and they pistol whipped her and painted a swastika on the wall with her blood. And because of those uh those crimes, they were arrested and they were sentenced to prison. Uh, many of the other people who had been a part of this organization who either weren't arrested or weren't a part of that night's events uh, kind of faded away. They were in fear of the police. Some of them moved. Some of them grew their hair out. And suddenly there was this void for this 16-year-old boy uh, who could step into a leadership position because there really wasn't anybody left. And anybody who we, we had recruited or who I had recruited uh, since I joined now looked to me as the de facto leader uh, because I had been around the longest. I was fairly charismatic and, and, and fairly passionate about the movement. 
So I rose up pretty quickly in the ranks, even uh, so to start one of America's first white power skinhead bands and release music and also travel to Europe as the first American band to do so, to play in front of 4,000 skinheads from all over Europe and Eastern Europe. And this, you know, the lifestyle of the movement is is what most people would expect. Uh, It was filled with uh, hateful rhetoric that was meant to instill fear in people. Uh, because of ignorance, then that fear turned into violence and hate. And, uh, you know, it's pretty typical with these movements. And I think we see this a lot with, you know, groups like ISIS and extremist groups like the neo-Nazis or the KKK. Uh, and even with some of our politicians today, that the rhetoric that they're feeding our society is full of fear. And that fear plays on the ignorance that Many of our communities are so isolated that we've never had contact with the people that they profess to hate. So that ignorance is really breeding hate, and oftentimes that hate manifests as violence. And the the movement was was rife with violence. Uh, While we weren't necessarily uh, focused on violence locally with our group, we were more about marketing and recruiting because I had the band and I was effective with that. We had our fair share of violence. And that violence was often targeted at anybody who wasn't like us, uh, you know, whether they were black, Jewish, Hispanic, gay, or even white, and didn't want to adhere to our ideology. We saw them as as race traitors. One of the questions I have, Christian, is as I was thinking about this and I read your book and I was listening to you talk about, I mean, there's a degree of pleasure associated with the power and even being able to hurt other people. And you do such a good job writing it from the point of view of where you were back then, which I'm sure was unbelievably hard for you. But I I could feel like I could actually feel in reading it how intoxicating all of that was. And one of the questions that came up in my mind was like, you were 14, you're a kid, you're going through this even up into early 20s, you're still a kid. It's such a fundamental language to learn that hate. It's almost like someone who's Chinese who comes to America and then has to learn English as a second language. Your first language was so embedded in power and hate that I wonder... As you have transitioned out, how do you not kind of revert almost back to that language? How do you how do you not when you get angry or you get mad or you see situations that triggered things for you in the past not default there? Or do you and then you have to quickly go, okay, I need to get I need to actually reframe this. I'm not that person anymore. Sure. You know, and that's actually a question I get asked quite a bit, even though I've been doing work to combat. Uh, what I helped build for the last 20 years, I still get asked the question, you know, do you ever have feelings of hate or do you have feelings of wanting to go back? And, uh, you know, the answer is uh, for wanting to go back equivocally, no, Um, because it was such uh, it was such a destructive part of my life, both externally and internally, that it's not something I could fathom going back to. But I would always state to that, you know, maybe I haven't changed. I haven't changed from that person I was who I, you know, prior to 14 years old, when I was that innocent, curious, ambitious 
kid. And that journey that I took for seven years that brought me down the road of hate was something that I was taught. Because like I mentioned earlier, I wasn't raised in an environment of hate or prejudice. And my Mm -hmm. parents were often the victims of of prejudice. So that wasn't my foundation. Uh, At 14 years old, I was detoured uh, from what I believe my true meaning and my true heart was saying uh, and brought down a really destructive road where I was taught to hate. And uh, because I was taught to hate, I also uh, was able to, um, to unteach myself to hate. And that only happened because I was exposed to people who showed me compassion and empathy when I least deserved it. And, you know, and from the people I least deserved it from, because they were often the targets of my ire. Uh, and that's a really powerful thing. Uh, when that happened, when I started to meet these people. And at first I was very standoffish. I had opened a record store in 1995 with the intent to sell white power music that I was importing from around the country. This was before the internet and before, um, you know, you could just shop online easily for an MP3 or a CD. So I would import this music from Germany and from England and sell it in my store. And, and people would drive hundreds of miles to come visit my store to buy it. And before I knew it, it was 75% of my revenue. But because I wanted to be a good business person like my parents were, you know, I decided I was going to fill the store with other music like punk rock and heavy metal and hip hop and ska. And and, uh, as these people came in to buy this non-racist music, um, unwittingly, I started to build a rapport with them and I started to respect them. At first, it was I was very standoffish and I bit my tongue because these were people I had alienated from my circle for seven years. Uh, but as they kept coming back and I think that they knew what I was about, I mean, it was a small area in Chicago and and everybody knew everybody. They came in, I think, to poke at me and to try and crack my shell. And over time they were very effective at doing that. And I started to meet these customers and I started to dialogue for the first time with black people in a meaningful way. And I met Jewish people and I met same sex couples. And I quickly realized after conversations with them that, they felt the same love for their children, you know, when the same sex couple held them in their arms that I felt for my children. And, you know, the Latinos and the blacks felt the same pain when they had family struggles or when a girlfriend broke up with them that I felt when those things happened to me. And I was suddenly able to make a connection, uh, not only with my own innocence prior to 14 years old when I joined the movement, but also to these people on a human level. And that empathy started to fill the cracks that had started to appear, uh, you know, around my heart. And before I knew it, I, I began uh, looking at these people as friends and more so than this family structure that I had built around me for seven years. And suddenly I couldn't reconcile my hate anymore and my prejudice. And when I decided to pull the the white power music from the shelves, which was 75% of my gross revenue, of course my sales tanked and, and I had to close the store and, and uh, because I was so embarrassed to, to sell the music and I couldn't in good conscience um, do that to these new friends that I had. Um, and you know, the store closed, uh, and, uh, I kept those friendships forever, but it had it not been for the compassion and the empathy that they showed me when I least deserved it. Uh, I don't know that I'd be sitting here talking to you now, at least in this capacity. You know, that what you're saying is that the strong us and them, which we actually have had someone else on grow big always that, uh, I think you even know that has been in a cult, uh, in the Mooney cult. Mm, yeah. Diane Benscoder, 
And what you're saying is is that the us and them structure that had been put in place started to get eroded um, when people were coming into your store. But I, I'm trying to imagine since your whole world was constructed, your entire social circle, everything that was going on around you, all your friends, your entire universe was invested in in the neo-Nazi community, how you actually, it's not as simple as like, oh, you know, I found out people were really not the way I thought, so I just kind of switched. It's got to be way, way harder than that in practice. <laughs> yeah, you know, and for the seven years that I was involved, I had uh, what I call in my books, uh, moments of clarity, where, uh, for instance, uh, you know, there was one evening in, in 91 or 92 when I was uh, 17 or 18 years old, where uh, some friends of mine had been drunk and we walked into a McDonald's, uh, you know, around midnight and there were some young black kids standing in line. Uh, and I proclaimed to them very loudly and very drunkenly that this was uh, our turf and that they weren't welcome there. And because there were more of us than there were of them, they ran out of the store. Uh, and as we ran after them and crossed the street, one of them, uh, turned around and opened fire on us, shooting three or four shots before his gun jammed. <clears throat> and when we found him, uh, ultimately, um, we, you know, he was on the ground and we beat him very, very badly. And I, as I was kicking him and his face was covered in blood and, and, and I couldn't see his features, his eyes opened. And um, I suddenly had this moment where uh, I thought that this could be my own brother or it could be my mother or a friend or my father. And, uh, and I had, uh, this moment of empathy for this person. And, uh, then the police sirens came and, and we ran, but I had those, those types of moments throughout my seven years. And I would say for the last two years of my seven year involvement, my heart had already begun to change my, you know, the logic of this ideology began to not make sense to me anymore. And so it didn't, it didn't occur overnight. It was a, it was a really a series of events that started with my child being born uh, when I was 19 years old and holding him in my arms and suddenly reconnecting with my own innocence that I had lost at 14 uh, and uh, meeting uh, these, these human beings at the store that I normally wouldn't have associated with and understanding that, uh, you know, we really came from the same place and, and experienced the same pain. And then after I closed the store, I spent five years. In a, in a pretty dark depression where I contemplated wanting to kill myself and I got into abusing drugs and alcohol uh, until a friend of mine uh, saw my desperation and in 1999 urged me to apply for a job at IBM. And I had no technical experience. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no real resume. So I, I you know, I faked it a little bit and uh, mm -hmm. ended up getting the job. And, uh, you know, by a stroke of fate or luck or, uh, you know, being unlucky, I was uh, assigned as my first project at IBM to do a computer rollout program at my old high school. Out of the millions of places that IBM could have placed me, they literally placed me back in my old high school where I was kicked out of twice. And I was terrified. Uh, I didn't know what to do. I thought for sure somebody was going to recognize me and point me out and get me fired. And in fact, on my first day there, uh, I did see the old black security guard who I'd gotten in a fist fight with. Uh, and, uh, and it was the reason why I'd been kicked out of school and had a restraining order against me. 
So when I saw him, uh, I decided uh, after a lot of trepidation because I I was unsure of what to do, uh, I, I decided to follow him to the parking lot and I tapped him on the shoulder when he was at his car and, and he turned around and his jolly smile turned into a scowl when he recognized who I was. And after talking for a while, the only thing I could really muster to say to him uh, for all the for all the pain that I'd caused him in the school was that I was sorry. And uh, we talked for a little while more and we shook hands and we both cried a little bit. And then it felt like the heavens opened up and surrounded us with this kind of redemptive, warm light. And he made me promise that I would tell my story to other people. And that was really the impetus for me to, uh, to begin thinking about writing the book. Uh, and those three events were major catalysts for me over a period of time to really uh, allow my heart to change. Because for those five years, when I was out of the movement and my heart had begun to change, uh, I thought I could outrun my past. I didn't talk about it with anybody. I thought, you know, I'll make new friends, I'll move, I'll start wearing long sleeve shirts to cover my tattoos, and I can start a new life. But what was really happening was, uh, because I wasn't talking about it, it was eating me up from the inside out and I was not healing. Uh, and it wasn't until I had that moment with the security guard where he urged me to tell my story that I finally saw a glimmer of hope uh, with how I was feeling. And I realized quickly that uh, it was my past that was still killing me, even though I had left it behind. So I decided to start to talk about it. And uh, and it start, the book started as a 20-page entrance paper to DePaul University, where I applied for a degree in international business and international relations. And when my counselor read the 20-page paper, um, he also urged me to consider turning it into a book because it was an important topic that nobody had written about. There's movies that flash through my mind uh, and that may be Hollywood, but where, you know, it's maybe like a mafia movie where it's like someone's like, hey, I want to get out of the mafia. And there's some scene that shows it like, hey, that's we're, that's not possible. We're not going to let you do that. Or they come after that person later. There's some bad exchange that happens when someone tries to leave the group. So when when the store shut down and you moved into this new chapter, I mean, you were so instrumental in the uh, neo-Nazi community. Then did they just say, all right, well, goodbye? Or was it different than that? No, it wasn't as easy as that. Uh, fortunately, I was a pretty selfish leader uh, locally, so I never really groomed an heir apparent to take over. So at, at least at the local level, when I decided to leave, at first, under the auspices of I was, quote unquote, retiring because I had been doing it for so long and I had a family to support, I didn't get a, a whole lot of uh, pushback. Uh, eventually, when they found out that I had left for other reasons, um, there really wasn't anybody in place, at least locally, to uh, to come after me or uh, to pressure me or to you know commit any kind of violence for me leaving. Uh, you know, regionally and nationally and internationally, that was a, a different story, though, because I had built a celebrity, uh, not only because I had been around for very long and part of a, an infamous uh, organization that was the first to exist. Uh, but, I, you know, I had the band and people were very disappointed. I was often called a race traitor. I received death threats. And uh, still to this day, uh, you know, I, every once in a while, I'll find that they publish my phone number or my home address online on one of their websites as a, as a target to attack. Uh, and fortunate for me, they're always one step or two steps behind me, and they always publish an old address and an old phone number. But, uh, you know, it, it's part of the territory. For many, many years, for seven years, I planted uh, seeds of hate 
everywhere that I could. And 20 years later, I'm still, uh, I consider myself a constant gardener because I'm still pulling out the weeds from all those hateful seeds that I planted. For instance, when, uh, you know, Dylan Roof walks into a, a, a Charleston church and, and murders nine innocent people or a Wade Michael Page, uh, who's a skinhead walked into, uh, you know, a Sikh temple in Oak Creek, Wisconsin and, and murdered six innocent people. Those are the types of weeds that I'm still pulling out. And those are the types of things that affect me very, very deeply because whether directly or indirectly, I was involved in spreading that hate. I know that, uh, you know, part of my rhetoric or part of my beliefs or my music or whatever it may be reached these people and may have influenced them in some way. So I take that very, very seriously. And that's why I've dedicated the last 20 years of my life to combating uh, racism, uh, both the kind that I created and, and also the institutional racism that I believe exists in our country and, and has existed since our country was founded. I want to talk about that, actually, because I think that, you know, extremist examples of anything are just very easy to point to, right? You can take a look at Nazis, you can you can point at ISIS, you can point at extreme rabbis, um, you can, you know, point at extreme opinions. But it's always those less extreme situations that are less manifested on the outside where they're still kind of on the inside. Maybe people still are having these feelings, but they don't feel like they can talk about them. It's not PC. It's not It's not okay. So what can people, the people who are listening, who maybe aren't living such an extreme reality, what can they do to learn from the, the nuggets in your journey that could help them with their own growth, their own efforts to, to change. Sure. Well, first I would say that, you know, my story is a, is a cautionary tale uh, of anybody being uh, radicalized into an extremist group. I was a young kid and they certainly target young people for a very specific reason, especially at the age of 13 or 14 or 15, because that's when young people are starting to break away from the influence of their parents. They're starting to create an identity for themselves. They're confused. They have, uh, low self-esteem and they use those uh, things to try and attract people and they do that by instilling kind of these nuggets of fear because people are ignorant you know we're, we don't understand uh, things that um, aren't necessarily like us or that you know are foreign and oftentimes we don't make an effort to do that and that ignorance creates fear when we don't understand something we're typically pretty scared of it or we tend to back off sometimes uh, you know and it often happens in these types of movements and in fact their whole uh, you know their whole ideology is based on this is blaming everybody else for the problems that you're facing in your own life now I can tell you from being in the movement there were lots and lots of problems uh, with people. There were drug addicted people. There were certainly alcoholics. Uh, a lot of folks were out of work. Um, you know, their socioeconomic uh, background, uh, you know, was was one of, of poverty typically or broken homes. And because of those reasons, uh, it was hard for them to accept the responsibility to fix those problems themselves or that those problems might be caused by things that were happening uh, in their own lives and not necessarily being caused by other people. So what happens in the movement and in many extremist movements, in fact, probably all extremist movements, is that they point the finger at somebody else 
to blame because it's really easy to hate. It's really easy to say that somebody else caused your problems rather than putting a mirror up to yourself and, and saying, Hey, I caused this. I can fix this. I can find my way out and I don't need to blame anybody else for my own shortcomings. And that's, uh, you know, that's typically what happens. And it doesn't matter if it's, you know, neo-Nazi skinheads or the KKK or ISIS or Al Qaeda. These people have a void in their life that they're trying to fill because happy people don't plant bombs. Happy p- people don't behead others or go to a synagogue and, <clears throat> and paint a swastika on it. It just doesn't happen. So what, you know, why people join these extremist ideologies in these movements is because they're searching for something that is missing from their life and they're intercepted by people by savvy recruiters who recognize those same things and can offer paradise in return for those problems unfortunately the paradise never manifests itself because the ideology is based on you know on flawed uh mentalities and 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 broken realities uh so it never manifests in fact life gets worse as part of these movements. Uh, and, uh, you know, that's kind of their MO. Is there advice that you would give to people who maybe feel a little bit, uh, us and them ish, but not as, as maybe extreme as that? You know, my word of caution and my advice, uh, would be, and I'll answer this in two different ways. First is a word of caution. Uh, we taught a concept in the movement called leaderless resistance. Most people might recognize that as the term lone wolf. So we actively taught people who were part of our movement to disassociate with the movement and blend into the mainstream. So what we saw over the last you know 25 years is that many of these same people who are the most extreme members of our movement infiltrated mainstream groups like the militia groups or the sovereign citizen movement or the extreme tea party movement or even the ultra conservative party and have started to just barely tone down their rhetoric just a little bit. So they may not be using things like the N word or specifically calling out Jews, but it's turned into something that's much more palatable to mainstream America. And, uh, you know, I think that that's why we're seeing a lot of the rhetoric and the fear mongering, uh, from our politicians right now, because they recognize that there is a large subset of American society that is disenfranchised with the way government is, is, uh, you know, treating them. And in, and in fact, it's probably not the way the government is treating them. Oftentimes it's their own socioeconomic status that they can't reconcile. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's scary because we can't, you know, you, you don't see skinheads walking around anymore with shaved heads and swastika under tattoos. There are very few of them. And, you know, the KKK, while is still uh, visible, there are very few of them. What's happened, which is very, very scary, is that many of these same people have now infiltrated mainstream movements to try uh, and, uh, and recruit kind of with a more mainstream, a more palatable marketing technique. But the rhetoric is the same. It's still Islamophobic. It's still xenophobic. It's still anti-immigrant. It's still very isolationist and racist. Um, my word of advice to anybody who potentially could be going down this road or is in this uh, lifestyle or even to people and parents who you know don't see any um, of this happening in their families, I think the, I think the cure is empathy. 
you know, because Jonas Salk, uh, you know, did it with, uh, with polio, right? We have to treat the polio victims. We have to treat the haters so that they can leave that lifestyle, which is something that I do with my organization. But we also have to inoculate the population from hate at a very, very young age. We need to treat and teach kids uh, at a very young age, from the day that they're born, to live with empathy, to, to embrace compassion uh, and treat other people as human beings uh, other than, you know, the other, like you said. Uh, and I think that if we can do that, we can both prevent and, um, you know, and treat uh, the symptoms of hate uh, with people in these organizations and also with the general public. Is there a way to bridge the gap with the people who are extremists or much like my conversation with Diane, she, you know, her thing was, look, when, when you're in it, you know, it's, it's, she used to do deprogramming, right? Like it, it was yeah, extremely hard to actually communicate with those people. It was the people around them, the people who are exiting it, the people who've gone through it that you could, you know, build bridges with, but the people who are infected with this rewiring of their brain are are walls that can't be broken down is that is that what you believe as well or is it different no i do i do believe that people like me and there are many other people like me who are doing this kind of work in fact uh, in 2010 i started an organization a nonprofit organization called life after hate and life after hate was started uh to be that support group that didn't exist when I wanted to leave. There was no support group that was focused on uh, extreme right, uh, neo-Nazi, white supremacist uh, folks who were involved in these movements who, like me, may have had some confusion or may have had some doubts who are, are searching for a better way. And we want to be that support network for them to leave these hate groups and show them that, uh, you know, if you can be just a, a more compassionate and empathic person, we can help you uh, with some of the things that may be missing from your life that cause you to go towards the group initially. Um, so we're not really deprogrammers, but uh, but you know I am an interventionist. I do uh, often talk to people who are embedded in these groups uh, who want to get out, some who don't want to get out. Uh, sometimes I get contacted by family members of people who they're concerned about that might be going down that path. Uh, and, um, you know, the first thing that we do that I do when I sit with these folks is I listen to them, uh, rather than battling ideologies with them, uh, it, which doesn't work. It just emboldens them to be angrier. I listen because they will often give me the clues themselves without even knowing it of what's missing in their life and why they may have turned down that road and what they need to, to leave that path and, and live a, a more positive, more fulfilling, um, more accepting life. Uh, and it's a difficult road, uh, because when people are stuck in this ideology, they're very, very passionate about it. Um, and, uh, I try to immerse them in situations that just change their perspective a little bit. I'm not trying to change them overnight because I know that that's not possible, but if I can change their perspective a little bit by immersing them in situations and if, you know, they're, uh, you know, anti-Muslim, maybe it's, it's meeting an imam and spending a day with him to recognize that, you know, their vision of Islam, uh, isn't the same as what true Islam is, or if they're, you know, uh, if they have a problem with Jews, maybe it's meeting with a rabbi or with community leaders to, to, you know, to just talk about things because they've never, oftentimes they have this hate because they've never had an opportunity to meet the object of their hate. Uh, 
and it, it stems from ignorance. And once we can bridge that gap between ignorance and, and some emotional intelligence, uh, oftentimes those feelings become so confusing, the hate feelings become so confusing that they can't reconcile them anymore. And, and uh, they're compelled to open up and and be more accepting. Um, but it's, it's a tough road, uh, but we've been very successful at it. In fact, we launched a program just this year called Exit USA, uh, exitusa.org, which uh, is a website where people can go if they're struggling with this and contact us confidentially and anonymously or text us uh, or call us or send us an email. Almost functions like a suicide hotline where we will then begin a conversation with these people and try to gauge what it is that they need to change. And sometimes that's uh, services like job training or education or mental health counseling or tattoo removal. And other times it's mentorship. Uh, they just need somebody to talk to uh, because they certainly can't talk about their confusion with their comrades because that would be seen as a sign of weakness. That's critical work. I'm, I'm curious, what you have how many kids too? I have two boys, uh, 20, 23 and 21 now. What are some of the moments where they've asked you questions about your journey that, and that journey, by the way, can include the, the <laughs> from today backwards, right? Not sure. just the time when you were a neo-Nazi, but what are some of the questions that they've asked you that have both, that, that have been those moments where you've been like, wow, that's super, that's super enlightening or super surprising. And it could be either on the negative or positive side. You know, my, my children were the, were the first people to read uh, the first draft of my book uh, 10 years ago. So they were roughly 11 and 13 uh, when they read my book. And it was important to me that they read it because not only had I talked to them about my past prior to that, but I wanted them to really know that there wasn't anything that they couldn't talk to me about because in my book, I'm very vulnerable. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I want, I, I drop my guard and I tell people everything, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly, uh, in the voice of who I was at that time. And you can see in the book how that voice progresses. Uh, but it was important for me to talk to my children and they've certainly had, uh, you know, lots of questions about who I was, but I think more than anything, they can appreciate the fact that I was able to have an open, honest, vulnerable conversation with them so that they know that they can have those same conversations with me. And there've been moments that have arisen over, uh, you know, the last 20 years where they've had questions and, you know, the environment that I try to create to answer those questions is, is, you know, a collaborative one. I always ask them questions back so that they can understand uh, where those answers need to come from within themselves. And, uh, you know, it's just about being there. It's about listening and it's, a, and it's about answering questions honestly and not sugarcoating it because like Clark Martell did to me in that alley, when he gave me a reason to change my life, I want to give them a, a very honest reason without, you know, belittling them or judging them or, uh, you know, demeaning them in any way as if they're children, because, uh, you know, at 14 years old, when I was a child, I was doing very, very adult things. And I, I would never underestimate uh, the power of young people because I think that, you know, the younger they are, the more compassionate they are and the more understanding they are. And at some point they lose that. So I'm very careful to, uh, to try and instill the fact that they try and keep that innocence and keep that wonder and keep that, uh, that acceptance that always manifests as the young person. I remember being in Paris uh, in a in a 
time of my life where I was moving from one chapter to another chapter, and there was a guy there that told me a little bit about Voltaire, um, which is a French author, and he was talking about how one of the, I guess, quotes or parts of Candide, uh, a, a book that he wrote was about tending one's own garden. And the whole idea was you've got this one garden in this one chapter of your life and it's it's got a whole bunch of stuff in it. And then you decide you're going to create a new one. And like you said, you're you're pulling weeds from your old one, but you're also planting new things and you get to decide what from your old world goes into your new world and what things are n- completely new and that you want to grow and I think that was really helpful to me. And I can hear when you're talking about it, how much of an emphasis it's been in this new chapter of your life with your kids, with your world, with trying to figure out how do I, how long am I going to have to fight off these weeds that have, um, that chased me from the past, but also you've ported it into uh, a reality that provides the extreme balance probably needed in your life. Yeah. You know, and, and rather than, than finding an ending point for, you know, this, this gardening that I'm constantly doing and, and pulling weeds and planting new seeds, uh, it's almost like I've started a landscaping business uh, and I've dedicated my life to that. I know that I had a role in this world uh, and, and during part of that role, uh, you know, I did some really bad things and affected thousands and thousands of people um, with my message. So I don't, you know, there isn't an end. This is something I've, I've willfully dedicated my life to not only to uh, try and reconcile the damage that I've done, but simply because it's the right thing to do. I mean, I think it's the right human thing for all of us to do, to, to be compassionate and, and empathic and see and strive to really understand the humanity in other people. Because I think oftentimes, while you know, we sit and watch the news, we feel terrible about things that are happening. And then that moment passes until the next time it happens. And then we feel terrible again. Uh, well, my goal is, is, uh, you know, is to, to both feel the pain when, when events happen, but use the time in between to educate people so that the events over time happen less and less. Uh, you know, we live, we live in a world where uh, we're at odds with each other. Um, we're not living in a, in a peaceful world. And I think that that happens because we don't understand each other. So my goal is, is to really foster that understanding so that there's less conflict uh, and, to, and, and opportunity. Because I think there's a, a large subset set of our society, uh, you know, the minority society, people of color, women who don't have access to the same opportunity or don't have access to the same privilege that some people in this country enjoy. And because of that, if we can't bridge that gap, if we can't bring that same level of opportunity to everybody, we're always going to be facing uh, you know, a problem of some people fe- feeling superior to others and some people feeling inferior and stuck in a cycle of violence or poverty or neglect or marginalization. And until we fix that, you know, I'm afraid that you know, these incremental steps of progress that we're making for, you know, same sex marriage equality and, and women's voting and, and gender parity. And, and it's, it's too incremental. We need to, at some point, understand human beings for what they are as, as equal human beings and bring the same level of equity to everybody. It'd be great to have more examples, people like yourself, people like, I don't know if you're familiar with Cory Booker, the, uh, Oh Yeah. New Jersey Democrat. Have you seen how he responds to to hate messages online? Have you seen that on Twitter? No, I haven't. (laughs) You know, he basically, people will send him tweets, you know, and they, they range in how ugly they are. Some of them are very hateful, but 
a lot of the ones that have anything to do with hate, he'll just respond with this, you know, thanks for your candid feedback. Uh, I hope that we both um, solve things through love and do a better job leading with it or something like that, you know? And it's just this crazy response to hateful messages publicly by someone that has a level of authority. And I think the more that we have examples of that and can and see, you know, see the vision of how to interact with people who are using hate, um, the better we'll all be equipped for, you know, building the bridges that you're talking about. Well, you know, I think that combating hate with more hate is, is a, a lose-lose situation. It emboldens, you know, both sides and, and, it, and it's more divisive. Uh, however, from my experience, combating hate with, with uh, you know, humanity and love and empathy is a more effective tool. And, you know, it may seem naive and, and it may seem, you know, really warm and fuzzy to a lot of your listeners that, you know, how am I supposed to go up against somebody who hates me for the color of my skin or for who I love or the God to which I pray for and is willing to do violence to me, how can I approach that person with love? And I can tell you firsthand that that's, that's the only, it is the most difficult approach, but it is the only one that works. Uh, and eventually people will understand that their hate has no effect on people if they're constantly bombarded with love back. And, and it's, it's a difficult thing to ignore once that happens. Uh, it gets you questioning not only yourself and your intentions, but the intentions of other people. And it allows you to see people uh, on, a, on a more level playing field as, as human beings, as opposed to things that are easy to hate or easy to destroy. Uh, human beings and friends and people who show you love are, are much more uh, difficult to alienate than anything else. Christian, you've gone through astronomical levels of growth and you, you've dedicated yourself to helping so many other people grow. And we really appreciate you being on Grow Big Always. People can find out more about your organization at what, lifeafterhate.org. Is that right? That's correct. And if they want to find out about the book, they can go to romanticviolence.com. Christian, thank you for being on Grow Big Always. Sam, it's my pleasure. Thank you and keep doing what you do. Wow, that was an intense conversation. A, a huge thank you to Christian. If you'd like to learn more about him, as well as uh, check out the page that I created for him that pulls all of the resources that we talked about in the conversation, as well as uh, links to his book, uh, his nonprofit, Life After Hate, then go to growbigalways.com and visit this episode's page. While you're there, sign up for the email. That way you know every single time there's a new episode released. In that email, I also pull those same resources together. So it saves you a trip over to Grow Big Always. Uh, and remember, we are non-commercial, completely supported by the little comments you make, the shares that you make, uh, the feedback that you send me. I'd really appreciate it so that I can make the show better every single week. Until next time, thanks for listening.